From Rhythm and Light in Chicago, I'm Steve Vordauer, and welcome to Rhythm of Life. Today on the show, host Bob Hercules speaks with the acclaimed documentary filmmaker Steve James, whose first film, Hoop Dreams, made an indelible mark on the cultural and sociological landscape in the U.S. This film won every major critics award in 1994, as well as a Peabody, and picked up many more accolades along the way. James also directed Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, that was nominated for an Academy Award and tells the story of a small financial institution that was the only company criminally indicted in the wake of the United States' 2008 mortgage crisis. He also teamed up with writer Alex Kotlowitz on The Interrupters, a film that brought us a remarkably intimate and fiercely honest portrayal of ex-gang members that transitioned to interrupting conflicts to stop gang violence in Chicago. His laundry list of vital and consequential films has brought us incredible insight into the world around us, and we are thrilled to welcome him to the show. Well, Steve James, thank you for coming on the show today. Great to have a chance to talk to you about your life and your career and your films. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Before I start into the substance of the interview, I I have to ask you how you're faring under the quarantine. Uh, I tend to work at home. Uh, When I'm not shooting, I'm virtually always home. I don't come into Cartemquin except if, you know, for edit meetings and such. And if I'm cutting which I often am, I'm cutting at home. So this isn't that different for me. Uh, what's different is my wife is now home uh, doing her job from home and seeing how little I get done each day. Um, <laughs> I can no longer lie to her about having had a really productive day. Um, but I miss seeing people and I miss seeing our kids. Uh, we're doing a lot of Zooming. Uh, you know, and, I'm, and I think that um, for the first part of the pandemic, I pay, paid way too much attention to everything that was happening. And yeah, I, I finally kind of stopped doing that. You know, it was, yeah. I was obsessing with it. And I, I've been a lot happier and more productive since then. I think that's a common uh, issue that I've heard a lot of people talk about. You finally have to cut some of it off because it, otherwise it, their anxiety level just increases. And yeah, but you're obviously not able to shoot films or anything like that right now. So are you? We've done a little bit of shooting. We're 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 working on a postscript for City So Real. That's not a whole episode, but that just sort of brings you up to date. But but okay. I'm mostly doing that by internet, uh, talking to people, uh, and we we're doing a, right. a minimal amount of shooting because we we don't have the budget for it and we don't want to risk it. Yeah, understood. Well, speaking of City So Real. Uh, this is your latest project. It's a four-part series about your favorite city, Chicago. <laughs> and uh, I got a chance to watch part of it at Sundance. I watched the rest of it at home. And I, I love the show. Of course, I'm a sucker because I love Chicago. I, I love and hate Chicago, shall we say. <laughs> and so I think it's a it's a fascinating show because, you know, on one level, it's it's a film about the mayor's race in 2018 where we had like a zillion candidates. Uh, but obviously it's so much more than that it has all these beautiful moments of uh like a pastiche of the city and i also thought it was just beautifully filmed by you and your son jackson our former intern uh i i was so impressed i mean i was impressed with the series but i also just want to before i forget to say it was just beautifully done beautifully shot so many great little 
moments that you captured uh, shots of Chicago in a way I'd never seen. And then, of course, you got into the nitty gritty of the contradictions of Chicago. The city's in shambles. We got to fix it. Only months before the mayoral election, community leaders are demanding incumbent Rahm Emanuel resign. What we have is more akin to a dictatorship than a democracy. And it's also because of closing the schools, it's because of pensions. And Texas suck. Fucking cities flat fucking broke all the time. I'm looking for a mayoral candidate that's going to give some innovative ideas besides adding more police. This election is one of the most important in our lifetime. Just hope we get somebody to get this mess straightened out. There's too many candidates, you know, you have to narrow it down. The woods are full of candidates. The crowded field will play out like a barroom brawl. That's Chicago, though, you know. Okay, Chicago win. Welcome to Chicago. So I, I just wondered how you, why you wanted to do that film, that series, and what were you thinking? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks a lot. Um, I, I would I would venture to say that most of the pretty shots were Jackson's, and um, <laughs> uh, so I thank you on his behalf. It, this is a, a a film, although it became a series that I've wanted to do for about twenty years. I when I was in grad school in Southern Illinois University, I saw this film by Chris Marker, La Jolie Mai, which is not one of his better known films, but uh, it really it really hit me because it was this portrait of Paris that he captured in the 60s right as France was getting out of the Algerian war and it was it was kind of like this kitchen sink approach to making a film there's interviews that he conducted with people on the street there's more sit down interviews that he did you see him sometimes in the corner of the frame there's verite scenes and there's there's these poetic passages that could be like Cartier-Bresson photographs of Paris uh, there's there's voiceover narration that I didn't even attempt because his is poetic and I could not possibly pull that off. But <laughs> right. but you know it's it 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 just really hit me. And the thing I took away from that film was what an amazing kind of multifaceted mosaic portrait of a city. And you can kind of do anything. And it also has a very serendipitous structure. He lets things lead him to other things. So. I've had it in mind for a lot of years to want to try to do something like that with Chicago, but find the right time because he found the right time to do it. And I've thought about it off and on over the years, but when this mayoral election rolled around, coupled with the fact that the Laquan McDonald trial would be uh, underway at the same time, I thought, gosh, and everything else going on in this city, <laughs> that this was the yeah. perfect time to do this film. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you, the momentum, of course, is provided by the mayor's race and also by the trial. But there's so many little pastiches of like the barber shop or the, uh, the uh, ex cops uh, gathering at a, at a, at another shop. Uh, you know, it just, uh, what was your strategy to, to make this, to shoot this and then to put it all together? Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's funny because, you know, Zach Piper, who has worked with me a lot over the years, um, was a, you know, and has been and was indeed in this case very much a collaborator, as was Jackson, my son. Uh, you know, we, we, we decided kind of early on, inspired by Chris Marker, that, that yes, we were, going to, we were going to focus on the election and the trial as sort of narrative spines but that we didn't just want to do that, that we wanted to let, 
let the days we go out shooting lead us where they lead us and what mm-hmm. whatever happened in the city lead us in. And so oftentimes we'd go out in the morning with one thing in mind to shoot with the expectation that we don't know where we're going to end the day. <laughs> and wow. it, it took a while, honestly, to, to, to really embrace that, you know, Bob? I mean, I'm, wow. I am a filmmaker like you who, 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 who looks to make discoveries. I'll always, you know, always be open to where your subjects or the story leads you, of course. Right. But it was, it, was yes. a, it was a little different step uh, it was a step closer to the ledge, if you will, <laughs> to yeah. to to kind of embrace this level of serendipity in in how we went out and approached. And it took us a while to find our rhythm, but once we did, it was I have to say it was a really exhilarating and exciting way to shoot. Yeah, I mean, really on the cliff there, uh, it's fascinating. One of the one of the scenes I remember was this incredibly arcane method of challenging signatures. Yeah. Or I guess for petitions for the mayoral candidates, and I was watching that, and I thought of Fred Wiseman, the famous uh, <laughs> you know observational filmmaker that you and I both uh, have been influenced by. So just t- talk, talk us talk to us about that scene where they're um, you know they're challenging signatures. I had never seen it's like watching you know how the uh, how, how the inside story of how, how something gets, like how sausage gets made, basically. On to the petition challenges. The petition challenging process is very tedious work, but if a candidate can show that one of his or her rivals collected enough signatures that are not valid, it can keep that person from getting on the ballot. You can object to anything you want. Just want to make sure you yeah, know. Yeah, just let me know, and I will mark it on here that not you are... Not pestering you. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. See, that's, that's part of, the, that's part of this process, so... They're trying to see whether or not the voter was registered at that address or whether the signature was valid. Line one, the allegation is not registered at address shown. Uh, I have a Philip is there. Yeah. I'm going to overrule. Okay. So the caller is positioned between a representative of the campaign and the candidate. And they're either going to say sustained, meaning the objection has been sustained in that case, or overruled. Line three, the allegation is not registered. Farley looks good to me, going to overrule. We're going to object that. Objection noted. Either side that doesn't like what the caller decides can say object to preserve that decision for further review. You're really going to object to all these even when they live there? Yeah. <laughs> It's frustrating for the candidates to have put all of this time and effort into gathering signatures to have objections that are totally baseless. We live in a democracy, so they have a choice to do this right here. They may make it difficult for the candidate. But, you know, it's a process. It make it difficult for us. No, well, I mean, these decisions haven't been difficult for you, though. They're clearly not good objections. The last couple that we've looked at have been... Yeah, they said that you didn't live at that that address, and sure enough, you pull it up on the screen, that's the name. Or maybe they took a blunderbuss and they just sprayed it all over the place or, like, throwing darts at the dartboard saying, we're going to object to this one, we're going to object to that one. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, I get a little heated. Yeah. No, our, our, our joke, you know, that also, the, the, the whole petition process, all, uh, in a sense, it's part of the election process, obviously, but it kind of became its own thread uh, yeah. during part of uh, a substantial part of the series. And 
that was unexpected. Uh, yeah. You know, I, that was unexpected. And, and Zach and I, uh, in particular, and sometimes Jackson, we spent we spent many days at the Board of Elections uh, <laughs> because it was just so interesting and fascinating. We just kind of got drawn into it. And our our joke at a certain point was is that if, if Frederick Wiseman came to town to do a film on Chicago, it would be called Board of Elections. <laughs> and, and that would that would be it. Yeah, I could see it. You know, we could have made a, a Frederick Wiseman style film all its own, just from what we got at the Board of Elections. Yeah. It was a challenge to shoot in a lot of ways. How do we visualize as well as explain <laughs> what's going on? Because it's quite arcane and yes. detailed. But it then became a big challenge in the editing of how do we then present this in a way that is clear to the audience, but doesn't, you know, put them to sleep. And, right. And David Simpson, who has been a long time collaborated with me as an editor, he did a terrific job. We, we both edited the film, but at a certain point, he kind of took on the that section to kind of clarify it better and winnow it down. And uh, and I think he did a really terrific job of, of making it work really well. I mean, is part of it just simply having the patience to roll for you know a couple hours or something because sometimes i have told students i said sometimes you just have to to roll tape for hours to get you know 30 seconds yeah i mean uh, it's something you talk about that i mean because that's been part of your process for years yes we certainly rolled a lot it's so it's a it's definitely a combination of rolling a lot but it's also as you know it's a it's a it's also thinking in the field about editing and thinking about what what is it that we're going to need to make this work and and because I edit I I really think that my having edited all these years has really been a, a huge help to me uh, during shooting because I I put on my editor's hat a lot of times in the field and think about what do I need in order to explain something like this or or, or any, anything that's that's at all complicated. Right. And, you know, like in this case, one of the things we decided during the editing process was is that I needed to go back to Jim Allen, who is the, the spokesperson for the Board of Elections and quite a hilarious, interesting guy in his own right. 416,810 voters with a turnout of about 26.3%. But at this point, we're just hoping for uh, a bigger evening rush. Yeah, anytime you set the table for all the different guests and you only have a third of them show up, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We killed a lot of trees for nothing. Between 4 to 6 p.m., we're told that there was a larger turnout than they had expected. So now we are sitting at about 34% voter turnout. We have Jim Allen here with us from the Board of Elections. So, Jim, what happened? Well, I think the word got out that there was an election today and there was a little bit of social shaming that we saw in the media. Uh, elections are like children, each one is different. And get him to kind of take us through the nitty gritty of the challenge process. I'd, he had already done it when we first shot, but I realized in post that it needed more clarity. And so we went back and got him to do that and that, that was a real key part of 
then bringing everything that we shot into clarity. It can be a little confusing because when you hear sustained, that means that the objector's complaint was found valid. That's a victory for the objector. And what the candidate wants to hear is the word overruled, meaning there's no validity to that objection. Right. I suppose there are times when you're shooting and then you become the editor later that you might occasionally be frustrated with yourself. <laughs> yes. And there have been, there've been many times in recent years, because I'm shooting more and more these days, there have right. been many times in recent years where I'm getting angry at something shot and then suddenly realize it was something I shot. <laughs> and then my anger kind of goes away a little bit. <laughs> well, I wanted to uh, just, when I was looking at a lot of your films over the past few weeks, getting ready for this interview. You poor guy. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, the, the issue of race in America is, I would say, the predominant theme of your films. Not all of them, but most of them. And I'm just wondering, was this a conscious decision or did it evolve organically because it is such a huge issue in America and the world? Yeah, I think I think that interest goes way back to uh, growing up for me because I grew up in Hampton, Virginia, which is down on the Chesapeake Bay. The, the town I grew up in was probably... 40% African-American and 60% white. There was not many other ethnic groups there, but those two. And the high school I went to was closer to 50-50, a public school. And, uh, and, and I think in part because I played basketball and, you know, I was one of the few white guys on the basketball team right. in my high school. And because my dad's business, he had a carpeting and floor tile business that was located in you know, what was often, you know, referred to as the dicey part of town, which meant the black part of town. You know, mm. I didn't live around black people, but I had very consistent and regular interaction and encounter with black people in my hometown. And it, and it, it really kind of threw into sharp relief fairly early on that life was really different <laughs> for me yeah. and for them. And I think I carried that forward, and, and when I decided I didn't want to just be a dumb jock at a certain point in college, uh, and then when I fell in love with film, I think I just gravitated to race as, a, as something that, that, uh, that I really wanted to explore because I felt so uh, unsettled and unfinished in how I felt and how I had experienced it growing up. You know, I grew up in a community where I heard the N-word Maybe not daily, but I heard mm. it an awful lot. Yeah. Uh, and yet I was playing on a basketball team where there were only two white guys on the team. I, I have such fond memories of that experience and the camaraderie that we had on that team. And, and so I would come home to a place that was incredibly racist, not my, my personal home. My parents did not use that word. But, right. The community. Yeah. I lived in a redneck part of town, basically. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so I just had a very, you know, I, and I think so in, in some ways to make sense of all this, I have been trying to make sense of it ever since uh, as a filmmaker. That and, and the other piece of it, I think, was kind of the American dream. Uh, my dad was a, a small businessman who had great aspirations to be a big success, and he did perfectly fine, but never measured up to the level of success that he had dreamed of and hoped of. 
And so I think that also is a fascination. And I think it's the combination of the sort of pursuit of the American dream along with race that kind of is embedded in a lot of my work. Hmm. That's that's interesting. You, uh, of course, you made a film somewhat autobiographical about Alan, the trial of Alan Iverson, who grew up in the same town you in Hampton. And I, when you were working on that film, uh, had you started by intending to put your own story into the film or was that t- was that a later thought or how did that evolve? Yeah, you know, Bob, I thought Alan Iverson's not interesting enough on his own, <laughs> you know. Not at all. <laughs> no, I mean, he's kind of not a very interesting guy, really. And uh, I thought, you know, I, I should be part of this. No, absolutely. That's not, that's not how it happened. Uh, <clears throat> what happened was is that ESPN came and they, they did with a, a number of filmmakers. They reached out to a number of filmmakers who had done sports films right. and said, we're doing this series. Are you interested in be a part of it? And if you are, think of uh, a story that's happened in the last 30 years that you feel hasn't been told and that somehow really resonates with you. And I immediately thought of this because... This whole thing happened when I was finishing Hoop Dreams here in Chicago. This whole trial that Allen Iverson went through as a high schooler that turned into a racial bowling alley brawl. Right. This is like in the early 90s? Yeah, this was, this was, this was, I was editing Hoop Dreams. So it was around 93. I was editing Hoop Dreams when this happened. And I remember thinking at the time, I should be there. (laughs) Making a film about this. But, you know, I kind of had my hands full and no money and so i didn't do it and so when this opportunity came around i went in and i pitched it to the espn guys and they said yeah you know you know it's a good story but you know we feel like the network covered it back then pretty thoroughly i don't know you know i don't know if it's if it's a story that people don't already kind of know if you're a basketball fan and i said well you know having grown up there it you don't know it and, and the more I talked about having grown up there and what I perceived of, of my hometown, then they warmed to the idea and they said, well, you know, the way to do this, we think, would be is if you are part of this story, is if you, your story becomes part of it, then it brings a perspective to it that, that we have definitely not seen. And so it was really kind of their idea that I do it. And so I kind of went with it. Over the years, I've bragged that basketball star Allen Iverson grew up in my hometown. Man, he is this would often spark a debate. At barely six feet tall, is Allen Iverson inch for inch the most talented player ever? I'm supposed to be a franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Or is he uncoachable? I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game. A and as selfish a star as there ever was. Thinking only about himself. Is he an icon who stayed true to himself? Or a thug in basketball shorts? I first heard about him from my dad when he was just Allen Iverson, the high school female. My dad first marveled at this scrawny, fearless kid's exploits on the football field, even though Iverson played for our tribal Bethel High School. By basketball season, my dad was saying he'd never seen an athlete quite like him before. The crowds would scream his childhood nickname, Bubba Chuck. Back then, no one would have believed that this celebrated, even beautiful athlete would soon racially divide the city more than anyone ever had. And that today, so many years later, 
he still haunts my hometown. Still makes me wonder about how far we've come. You start injuring innocent people. You've got to take responsibility for what you do. Hampton is on trial. Virginia's on trial. And America's on trial right here. He's given a fair and, and very lenient sentence for what he did. Uh, it works. I mean, it's it's in in a way, it's very intimate because you are uh, kind of narrating. It's part of your story as well. Uh, it's it, you're right. It's a unique perspective on a story that had been covered a lot. Uh, it's a great film. And I and I got a chance to interview my mom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, that was a trip. And my dad had passed away, or I would have interviewed him. Oh. But uh, the thing about that film for me, Bob, was I'm so glad I did that film. Because growing up there, I was, even though I was struck by, you know, my encounters with race and things that I spoke about a, a while ago, I was pretty, I was just very ignorant young guy in general. Yeah. And, yeah. As and we all really, were at that and, age. Yeah and, yeah, and really couldn't wait to kind of get away from Hampton. You know, I, yeah. it, it was like I was determined early on, this is not where I'm going to live. <clears throat> and right. so going back and doing this film was profoundly educational for me mm. and and binded me to my you know upbringing in ways that I did not anticipate was going to happen. Hmm, that's interesting. By going back and working on a film which is a kind of investigative film in a way, but you're also kind of investigating your own roots and your own relationship to that town it was during making iverson that i realized one of the reasons i made hoop dreams believe it or not mm. <laughs> huh. many years later um interesting and that was when i had the idea to do hoop dreams it grew out of an interest in race it grew out of a love of basketball a lifelong love of basketball it grew out of me having had the dream in my own white bread way to want to play in the NBA and 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 not having anywhere anywhere near the talent to even get a major college scholarship, much less play in the NBA. Right. Um, so I knew that Hoop Dreams was grounded in all those things, right? Mm -hmm. What I didn't realize until I did the Iverson film was that one of the reasons I wanted to make Hoop Dreams was because even though I had this sort of great experience of black teammates in high school and camaraderie and I had played pickup basketball and rec basketball with African Americans in all the years since I realized that I didn't really have a personal relationship to those players it was collegial it was you know snapping towels at each other in the locker room it was making fun of each other and trash talking but it wasn't I'd never been in their homes they'd never been in mine wow. and and I and I so I, it kind of dawned on me that hoop dreams in a way was an, an attempt much later to understand something about their lives and their love of basketball that that I had only scratched the surface of in my own That's personal a, yeah. experience yeah like a reappraisal of, of that experience as a as a kid in the relationship to the players that you played with to jumped into hoop dreams i i wanted to ask you about that film obviously it had a profound effect on you but also on all of us hoop dreams. Hoop dreams. 
how did the idea for Hoop Dreams come about? It came about when I was at Southern Illinois uh, in grad school, and I used to play a lot at the uh, rec center, play basketball. And there was, uh, you know, when I played there, you know, I was a pretty, I was a pretty good high school player. Uh, mm-hmm. I played one year as a walk-on on the fresh soft team in college, and then my career was over. <laughs> but uh, I, st- I remained very much into playing basketball for my exercise and sanity. And so I played a lot. And usually when I went to the gym, there was always, uh, and this is pretty typical in a lot of settings, where the best players play. And then there are courts of, uh, you know, consistently less talent as you go down the gym. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was good enough to play on the good court. And so, uh-huh. uh, but one day I, and, and that court was very integrated. There were, there were a lot of, you know, terrific guys who, you know, black and white who played on that court. Mm-hmm. And, but one day I went to the gym on a day that I didn't normally go. I think it was like a Sunday that I just never hardly went. Mm-hmm. And I went in the gym, and for some reason that day, the court, all three courts were virtually all black players at the school. Hmm. I, and I can, to this day, I cannot explain. It, it clearly was some kind of thing for the black athletes, you know, students, players, that that particular time that I happened to stumble across was kind of their time to be together and play. Yeah. And I didn't even play that day. I could have. They would have yeah. let me. But I sat and I just watched. And mm. it was on all three courts, too. Mm. And, and that's when I had this epiphany that I want to do a film someday about what this game means to them. And, and I thought at the time, because we were, it was pickup basketball in the, gy- in the gym, that the way to get at that would be is to do a film about pickup basketball. And right. and then I, you know, as I thought about it more, I thought, you know, Chicago would be a great place to do that film. And I was, you know, I was we were going to move to Chicago and I thought this is a perfect sort of passion project for me to do. And so when when my wife and I moved to Chicago all these many years ago and I started to look into it and I I hooked up with one of my college buddies, Frederick Marks, who also played basketball in high school uh, and we came to Cartemquin, what we pitched to Cartemquin was basically a half-hour film, not video, film. Mm-hmm. Uh, shot on, you are going to shoot it on we film. We were going to shoot it on film if someone gave us any money. Right. Uh, that was a big if. And it was going to focus on a single playground. You know, it was going to focus uh-huh. on, I was going to find a playground in Chicago where there were some young dreamers, where there were some uh-huh. ex-players, where that court had a history. Maybe a, an Isaiah Thomas or a pro player had come off of that court and was a legend from that court. And, right. and do a very narrowly focused film about playground basketball and the sport of basketball in that community, which hmm. which would have been a perfectly good idea. Yeah, it's absolutely. just we didn't end up making that once we got out there. It took us in a different direction. <laughs> right. You met the two characters you followed uh, for years then uh, in high school. Yeah, it really changed with Arthur because, you know, we went out with this guy named Big Earl, Big mm-hmm. Earl Smith, who's in the film. He's like a scout for the high school. Yeah, or? so he was an insurance salesman, but in his spare time, he scouted for top flight high school programs. He scouted mm-hmm. the, and interestingly enough, 
the guy that introduced us to Big Earl was Gene Pingator at St. Joe's because we approached Gene Pingator about thinking that maybe Isaiah could be part of this film if we went to a court that Isaiah had played on. Right, right? Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah, yeah, you know, is arguably the best player to ever come off the out of the city of Chicago, okay, which right. is quite a claim because there's been a lot of great players. Yeah, no kidding. So... You know, we met Pingator first, and he said, I know just the guy to speak to. And he introduced us to Earl Smith and said, this guy knows every playground in the city. I'm off to Central and the Congress Expressway, a park over there where some pretty talented young men. Earl Smith works downtown as an insurance executive. On weekends, he's an unofficial talent scout for several area high schools. This is what you call beating the bushes. This is the job of most of your freshman coaches and guys like me who, who played a little bit of the game, who loves trying to help young people on the road to success. And so we went out with Earl when we started to do that initial shooting on video because we didn't have any money and we just said, screw it, we've got to start something. We had, I had gotten a $2,000 Illinois Arts Council fellowship that we... <laughs> right. That wouldn't pay for much film stock. No. And we, and we met Peter Gilbert through Cartaglin. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Peter, Peter had his own gear because he was a shooter. Right. And he was a total basketball nut who also played on his high school team. Plus, Peter had, had worked with Barbara Koppel, one of your heroes. Exactly. So we went out that first week and with Earl looking and scouting for the playground that we were going to do. And it was during that time that he discovered Arthur on one of the shoots. And he was like, mm. ooh, I love this kid. I love this kid. You know, and we're like, which kid? Because we didn't see it. Today, Earl spots Arthur Agee, who just graduated from grammar school. I will bet you a steak dinner in four years you'll be hearing from him. I don't even know anything about it. But Earl, you know, had an eye. And, and it was so fascinating, though, what he was doing that, and he said, I want to take him out to St. Joe's. And we were like, oh, wait, we know the coach there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Who, inter- who was the guy who introduced you to the you know, Who introduced us, with, right. right. You know, he says, yeah, I want to take him out to see Gene. Uh, right. And let Gene have a look at him. And we just thought, this is fascinating. Your role today, Arthur, is to impress the coaches Try not to be too fancy. You take the open shot when you have it. Play good defense and make good passes. The rest of it just play natural, you know. I'm hoping I'm gonna go to St. Joe and play. But first I gotta I gotta I gotta I gotta get my book straight and hopefully come out and, and um, impress the coaches. Is it kinda scary? Yes, it is. So it kind of instantly became, instead of staying on a, play, a playground court and telling the story, it was going to be the story of a kid trying to leave the playground hmm. and make his dream come true. So it started to become more expansive. 
Yes. So you went, I take it you went with him to the, to the school. We got permission. Yeah. And Arthur went the day, I forget, I think this was Earl's idea because he was trying to impress Arthur with St. Joe's. He went the mm-hmm. day that, that Pingator had Isaiah in for the camp. That's right. There's scenes of Isaiah in the, That's right. in the film. It's, and you and, can see it in Arthur's and, eyes. And Isaiah. Worship, and, yeah, worshipful and I, eyes. Yeah. Oh, my God. And Isaiah was Arthur's hero. And yeah. Isaiah was from the West Side, where Arthur was. Right. And grew up not far from where Arthur was living. It was like million of guys trying to be better than the other. But to me, I was better than all of them. Except Isaiah. So it was kind of like, you know, I mean, honestly, the documentary gods <laughs> smiled on us in a yeah. big time way to kind of create all of these interesting connections immediately. And then while we were at the camp that very day and we had our first interview with Pingator after he'd watched Arthur play and he says, and it's in the film, you know, Arthur's raw, he's got talent, I can see it. He says, but I've got a kid coming in here that I think could really be something. He could be the next Isaiah Thomas. And I was like, who's that? Right. And he goes, he's here, he's, his ankle, he turned an ankle so he's not playing today. And so we went and talked to William in the stands, sight unseen of him as a player, just on that. And that was the beginning of William's story. When Isaiah, I just knew he was going to be a great one. He had that total combination of personality, confidence, talent, intelligence. I think I see it in one kid that's coming here. He flows with a a smoothness and confidence and and strength that uh, you don't see in every kid. He could become a great player. So did you uh, settle at that point on those two to follow their story because you could have had other possibilities, but, or, or did you, were you filming other kids at the time or did you immediately settle on those two? We didn't film other kids, but there were two other kids that we had looked at before the camp through Earl. One Mm -hmm. was uh, a kid named Mickey Irvin, but then Mac Irvin, the father through Earl said he didn't want it because he didn't want to put the pressure on his son. And then there was another son of a kid that was connected to St. Joe's, Wordlaw was his last name, that we looked into possibly following, but his dad wasn't so sure about it. And then we met Arthur And then when we went out to St. Joe's and met William, it was like, well, these two kids. And because we had no money, I remember thinking at the time, you know, we don't really have any money. We'll maybe we'll follow both these kids. And then at some point, we'll just focus on one of them and hope Mm. that hope that one of them is an interesting story. Because honestly, we didn't see what Arthur became in terms of the story that unfolds in Hoop Dreams in terms of Arthur blossoming as a basketball player. Right. Well, how can Um, you know? We didn't know, and we, we kind of thought, you know, we should hedge our bets some, too. Oh, and have and, and to also focus on William, just in case. And focus on William, because yeah. people are saying he is the, the real deal. You know, right. Arthur's a raw talent, but this kid's the real deal. And, you know, I've had people over the years say, God, you must have followed a dozen kids, and then you selected those two to focus on. It was like, no, we didn't have the money to follow. We didn't even have the money to follow two kids, but we did, and they right. they were the story. And he, did you have a sense somewhere along the way that this was going to be much bigger than a smaller film about two kids in street basketball and getting recruited to a 
uh, a white kind of fancy high school. Uh, when at what point did you realize this is much bigger than what we set out to do? This is a almost a sociological uh, observation, you know, besides the basketball. Well, we we realized pretty quickly that it wasn't going to stay on a playground for sure. Um, and then once we did some filming with William and then met on the very first day that we filmed with William, we met Curtis, his older brother, who was mm -hmm. utterly fascinating to us. I know a whole lot about basketball. I guess in so many words, I feel like I'm a pro at that in my mind. When he went to college and like Michael Jordan first came to the NBA, they would, you know, sit around and argue over him who could play the best. Curtis was named Player of the Decade at Colby Junior College, but he also developed a reputation for being uncoachable. Curtis' idea of being real good is you don't follow the rules, you do what you want to do. Curtis finally signed at the University of Central Florida, but he didn't get along with the coach and rarely played. Even if he didn't play ball, it was a nice university. He could have finished school, but he couldn't handle it. All those basketball dreams I had, they gone. All I see, all my dreams is in him now. And then when we met Arthur's family with our first shooting at home with him, it's Sheila and Bo and uh, Sweetie, his little brother. When I get in the NBA, I'm a, uh, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go see my mama. I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to go there and make sure my sister and my brother's okay. If we can, Probably get my dad Cadillac. Oldsmobile, so he can cruise in the game. Oh, so real long. That one neat. He dreams about it. He look at those basketball commercials where they be advertising like these Nike shoes, and he'll tell, he'll tell his little small brother, Joe, Joe, that's me. My recollection is, is that we fairly early on fantasized, and it was more of a fantasy. We fantasized about the possibility that we might follow this story over a period of time and just sort of check in every once in a while with them. I don't even think about it, you know, if you don't make it, you know, I just, because I'm so, I'm so, you know, focused in on them making it. I just know he'll make it, you know. Because at one point, it's in the film, Pingator says to Arthur and his family, he's just met this family and seen this kid play a little bit in his camp. And he says to this family, he says, you know, if Arthur comes to St. Joe's, I can't promise he's going to be a star. I can't promise anything, but I promise that if he stays here, you know, for, at the end of four years, I will do everything I can to help him get into college. And that was mm. such an extraordinary promise for a kid yeah. like Arthur and this family that it certainly stuck with us and we thought, well, maybe, you know, gosh, is that possible? I mean, we don't have any money, but I don't know. Maybe we can, you know, Peter's donating his camera for free, <laughs> you know? <laughs> maybe we can do something like that, but it was nowhere near the ambition 
that it became at all in our thinking. And I think when it really dawned on us that this was a considerably larger story was sophomore year when mm. Arthur was kicked out of St. Joe's and goes right. back to Marshall. And that turn of events really was, you know, striking and revealing. If he was going out there and he was playing like they had predicted him to play, he wouldn't have been at Marshall. Economics wouldn't have had anything to do with him not being in St. Joe's. Somebody would have made some kind of arrangement and the kid would have still been there. He's not making it like they thought he was going to make it on the basketball court, so he's not there. Simple as that. And it doesn't take no brilliant person to figure that out. And then when William started in his sophomore year to just open up about the pressure he felt to be a star and that he right. felt from everybody, his family, his brother, everyone, that everyone was counting on him. Make sure you look at how many shots been taken. George might shoot on 15 out of 40. No, 15 out of 40? Well, I'm just saying, for instance, he's done it. <laughs> but see, if you do that, you don't know about it. Curtis tell William the most important thing is getting the ball in the basket. Curtis said the boy's good. He said he's real good. He said, but he don't listen. He said if you listen to him, he'd be better. <laughs> they always tell me, but you should do this and you should do that. It's like everybody I know is my coach. Uh, I remember coming home after talking to him one day on camera with and Peter and I got on the phone, which we often did <laughs> at nights after shooting all day. We would talk for hours on the phone. Right. I, I remember having a conversation with Peter where we were just both kind of like stunned by this kid and by his insight and his sensitivity and, and his awareness for such a young age. And just thinking, this kid is special. Because there's a tendency even today, but especially then, to think of really talented basketball players as guys with huge egos, dilettantes, uh, everyone, you know, get, clears the way for them. And he, William was the exact opposite of all that. And yet mm. he was immensely talented. When I first went to St. Joe's, I really did sleep, eat, and drink basketball. That was all I did. But it became more of a job than a sport to play. Things here have not changed since... You know, Coach Penny told us how these dreams in his head. For me just he just wanted me to go the same route he took Isaiah. The most steals. He played as a freshman. Not even Isaiah was a four-year starter. You know, basketball was just like he was possessed with it. You know, it was his life. And he wanted it to be everybody else's life, too. All-conference in the SEC, all-state in the Sun-Times, McDonald All-American nomination, MVP 1990-91 season, William Gates. some real problems. I couldn't go to none of them about it. And I was having some problems with Catherine's family and my family, and I said, you know, Coach Pingatoa, you know, they family been getting on me about, you know, I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. And the only thing Coach Pingatoa could say is, 
write them off. That was all he told me. I was like, what kind of advice is that? It's, it's an incredible, obviously incredible story for that you followed for about four years, right? Well, more closer to five. We, five years, yeah. We, we started before freshman year, that summer before, and then we followed them into their first year of college. We shot not a ton at college, but we shot considerably more than you see at the end of the film in that little mm. um, you know, epilogue kind of thing. Right. Um, we shot considerably more, but in the editing at a certain point, we just said, you know what, that's an epilogue, it's not this story this story is fundamentally over when they leave for college right how did the success of hoop dreams how did that change your life well bob you know i was really on a fast track before hoop dreams came out <laughs> clearly <laughs> i mean i had lots of people beating up my doors you had a two thousand dollar grant from the illinois arts hey, Council. not everybody gets those no you know that i the hoop dreams is the single, yeah, I mean, the single biggest, uh, outside of marrying Judy, who, you know, 40 years later, we're still at it. It's the single biggest thing that happened in my life. And it changed everything. It, when we were making Hoop Dreams, we used to joke, as it started to get, seem that it was going to be longer, it went from, we think, well, we think it's an hour, to, well, we think it's 90 minutes, well, well we think it's two hours, to eventually... Geez, I don't know. We think it's three hours. At a certain point, we got public television money, so it was going to be on public television. But we were shooting it on video. And I remember when the MacArthur Foundation came on board and literally saved the film financially to allow us to make the film we wanted to make. Before we got the grant, the, the guy at MacArthur, Woody Wickham, God bless him, he said to me, he said, well, is this... He'd seen stuff, and he said, is this, is this a film that could playing theaters. I said, no, we shot this on video. It's going to be long. No way. Because at that time, the only documentaries that played theatrically were shot on film. Right. And there were very few of them. And there the were time. very few of them. And none of them were three hours long, I don't think. Right. Uh, maybe Max Ophel's, you know, um, Holocaust epic. film. Well, no, not Shoah. Um, nah. You know, Sar and the Pity. But if oh, it, sorry, but it, but if it if it played theatrically, it played in New York. <laughs> and that was right. It. And then so, Paris. Yeah, right. in Paris. So, you know, I our our joke that wasn't so funny was we're going to finish this thing and public television's going to put it on at like eleven o'clock at night because right. And then we're going to run into people the next day and they're going to go you know because this is before streaming. Right. Right. And DVR. We're going to run into people the next day and go, oh, your thing was on last night, wasn't it? Jeez, I forgot about it. <laughs> you know, and that's it. It's over. And it's it's ephemeral at that point. It's uh, runs on PBS once and uh, yeah. maybe maybe next year one more time. And that's it. Yeah. It's on the electromagnetic waves headed to Pluto at that point, <laughs> you know, and that and that's the end. And, and that, you know, this would have been seven and a half years, roughly, of work. Yeah. Um, and, and it's over. And so so we got an inkling that it might be a little different when we had a, a gathering of people that the MacArthur Foundation did um, when we got into Sundance. That, right. was, that, was, that was really great. Uh, Sundance was important then. It wasn't what it's become, but it was still right. quite important. Yeah. And we got into Sundance, so that was a good sign. And so the MacArthur Foundation organized a gathering of, of 
key people and outreach people and people with experience in theatrical film and all this stuff to have a, a, a powwow about what to do with this thing. And people from public television came to that. And at that point, it became clear that public television was going to treat it specially, which was great. Mm. And then out of that meeting came the idea that don't, don't rule out some kind of limited theatrical for this film. Mm. John Pearson... Yeah who attended that meeting, who I ended up making a film on some years later. Um, yeah. He was the guru of independent cinema at that time and selling films for theatrical release. And he said, don't rule it out. Yeah. And so I, this is a long way around to answer your question. When it went to Sundance and Siskel and Ebert talked about it when it was only playing at Sundance on their national show that was the most powerful film criticism show you know in maybe America the, one of the few <laughs> maybe the only yeah, probably the only and, and they, they were arguably the, the most powerful critics in America at that point because they oh, were yeah. so popular no, right no doubt no and doubt when they went on their show when you could only see Hoop Dreams at Sundance and you know gave us this really wonderful review then it was like a sea change for the film and ultimately for you know for us because it meant that this film was indeed going to have a life beyond 11 o'clock on public television. Derek Zinnemann's layup pushes Marshall to a one-point lead. Moments later, a Westinghouse foul, and then a double technical puts Arthur on the line with a chance to ice the victory. That's a young man named Arthur Agee there at a key moment in a key game in his senior year in high school in a wonderful new documentary named Hoop Dreams. And you may remember that we first talked about this movie way last January on this show. We right. saw a special preview here in Chicago before it went on to conquer every film festival, Sundance, Toronto, New York. And uh, we reviewed it early because we wanted to, to say how good it was well, to call the, attention to yeah, it. The reason we wanted to call attention to it is we were hoping it would get a theatrical release, which it is now getting nationwide. And that's what it deserves. This is an extraordinary film that covers six years in the lives of two talented inner-city kids from grade school to the first year in college as they dream of someday becoming basketball stars. As the movie opens, Arthur is being recruited by a Chicago suburban basketball powerhouse, St. Joseph High School. I, I can't promise you where you're going to go and if you're going to be a star, but I guarantee that I would help you get into the school that would be best for you. The other subject of the film is another talented young man, William Gates, who is also recruited by St. Joseph's and gets lots of offers when he becomes a high school All-American. Any school you name. Dreams is one of those rare film experiences where you simply forget yourself and sit there totally involved in the incredible drama of what's happening. You may think you don't want to see a film about the inner city or about basketball, or you don't want to see a three-hour documentary about anything. But please forget those preconceptions. Hoop Dreams is a great film, and you owe it to yourself to see it. But even then, we didn't anticipate what ultimately became. I mean, if you had asked me if down even even in those heady times if you'd asked me that i was going to get a call from bo ag arthur's dad one day uh all excited many many months later and say that the president of the united states is on his way to arkansas state where arthur was playing college ball 
-hmm. he's on his way to Arkansas State, Clinton, to hang out with Arthur. Because of the film? Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and the day he did it was the day of the national championship game that year. Oh, wow. And the, at halftime, they had Clinton on, and they had uh -huh. footage of Arthur and Clinton shooting hoops wow. together. And Bo was just, well, of course, Bo was like, I, I, he, he was just, he was off the charts. And I, of course, yeah. was off the charts. And he told me, and I'll never remember something Bo said to me. He goes, he goes, he was so giddy. I never heard Bo so giddy before. And, you know, if you've seen the film, Bo disappears from the family for a period of time and comes back and he has his share of troubles. I think about it, had I not been on drugs, when Arthur went to St. Joseph's, just how good it would have been for him. He wouldn't have had to leave. Here's one of the corners right here. These four corners here, where I cop. Why you should come up here and cop all the time. Threw away a lot of money on these corners, boy. I almost threw my life right along with it. Well, at one point on the phone call to me, says, Two years ago, I was leaping rooftop to rooftop to get away from cops. And this morning, the president of the United States is going to see my son. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. I, was like, what a... I was like, what's next? The Pope? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Hoop Dreams, it's just the name even became sort of part of the lexicon of America. Yeah itself yeah so i wish we could have copyrighted that I, you <laughs> I want to jump forward to 2011 when you released the film the interrupters which you made with with uh, alex kotlowitz the the writer our mutual friend um and it follows the work of several violence interrupters on the west side of chicago and they're working for an organization called ceasefire and i'm just wondering how that film originated and how you got into it. Alex and I had been buddies for a while when 2009 is, is when we started that film. And we lived about, you know, he's moved to Chicago now, but for many years he lived in Oak Park and we lived about four blocks apart and we'd become friends. And I was a big admirer of his writing. He's an incredible writer and thinker. And... <clears throat> And he had told me that he was working on an article for the New York Times Magazine about this ceasefire organization and that he was pretty fascinated with it and enjoying it immensely. And, you know, and then it came out. And I, at that time, I got the Sunday paper in the mail and I read the article that day, that Sunday. Uh, and I called him up and I said, we had talked about maybe trying to pursue some kind of film together, but it was really mm -hmm. more in the scripted realm because he wanted to try his hand at script writing. And we thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe he could write something and I would direct it. You're talking but, about a narrative. A narrative uh, film. Yeah, screenplay. yeah. Okay. And, and uh, but I called him up and I said, Alex, uh, this is an incredible article. And he's like, thank you, thank you. you know? And I was like, I think we should try to pursue this as a documentary. And he was like, Oh man, I don't know. He's like, you don't know how hard it was for me to get access to these interrupter guys. It was not easy, and and then a lot of times when they were doing mediations, they told me to you know stay this over here in this block, right? And then they would come over and and I would quiz them to death, you know, do a, a reporter's job and and just find out what exactly what happened. 
And, you know, so, so, I, so you're reading these accounts of these mediations, but I wasn't able to be at just about any of them, even though it reads that way. And I said, yeah, because you're a really good writer. Um, right. But I said, you know what? Let's look into it because you've, you've done incredible legwork now in terms of winning the trust of the organization and guys, you know, you've done a lot of the hard work. And let's just explore it. Let's just check it out because we don't need endless mediations. You know, we're not doing reality television if we if we do this. Right. Which would be endless mediations. We're right. We're gonna we don't have to get endless mediations to tell this story. So let's at least explore it. And so he was game and we set about exploring it and they were they were receptive. And um, it took a while. We didn't end up following the people he followed, even though we tried in a couple of cases and it didn't work out for mm -hmm. various reasons. But it we just kind of worked our way in and, and the trust that he had built uh, there to begin with was pivotal. And then Al, uh, Zach Piper, again, was the third part of that team. Zach was a producer on it and did sound. And we right. worked very small. I shot it. and <clears throat> And... Another reason, though, for me that I wanted to do it was took me back to Hoop Dreams, which was at that point in time, you know, both Arthur and William had seen profound loss in their families due, From to, violence. due to Chicago violence. Arthur's dad had been murdered, even though they were living in Berwyn at that time. He was murdered by someone that came back from his past in an, in an unfortunate way. Mm. <clears throat> and... William's brother Curtis was also murdered mm. um, by someone, you know, I'm not going to get into what I know of the details of it, but he wasn't doing anything illegal at all. Um, but this weight on your mind then. Yeah, I and I saw, I, you know, I saw the impact that that had on those families, of course. I mean, I felt like to, you know, to a lesser degree, obviously, I had lost a relative. but. Yeah. So all of that was kicking around in my mind, and I was thinking, you know, this violence, I don't know what to do with it. And, and I read mm. these articles in the paper and see the news, and I just, I just feel helpless about what can we do about the violence in Chicago. And so right. that was also part of my motivation, it, you know, which was also part of Alex's initial motivation to, to even want to write the article you know, for himself, is struggling with those issues. Right. It's been an issue that he's written about a lot, actually, so. Yeah, going back to There Are No Children Here, which exactly. is, you know, a classic of nonfiction. I'd written a story for the New York Times Magazine about this organization, Ceasefire, and uh, and I was really um, drawn not so much to the organization itself, but to the, some of the people who work there, these mm. men and women who were in their 40s, 50s, some of them in their 30s. The interrupters. Right, all formerly right. of the street, who for right. one reason or another had the second act in life and were right. trying to undo some of the damage that they had helped cause when they were younger. Um, and I was telling Steve after the story came out, I said, why don't you come with me to one of these? They would meet every Wednesday. Yeah. And why don't you come to one of these meetings? You just look in their faces and you can see the kind of history there, the, the, the sort of the pain that they've experienced. Um, and, um, and we ended up um, 
you know, following three of the interrupters over the course of 14 months. I mean, the, the fine line we walked with this film is that we really didn't see it as a film about ceasefire per se, but really sort of we're using these three individuals to sort of be our eyes and ears in these communities to help us kind of understand and uh, what was taking place and understand the violence. Um, and it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, we ended up with three remarkable, remarkable people. Tell us about one of the characters, one of the interrupters is Amina Matthews, uh, who's an incredible character in the film. Charismatic, funny, direct, um, you know, she's just a, she's just, you can't take your eyes off her. Amina Matthews' father was one of the biggest gang leaders in the history of Chicago. She gets in where a lot of guys can't get in. So he, I, the life that I live in in shootouts, looking at the devil face to face, and I look at my, my sisters and my brothers today, you know, that was once me. Yeah, Mina, it remains a very close friend of mine to this day. Um, but it started, obviously, with making that film, and it didn't start well. <laughs> <laughs> no? No. Okay. Um, you know, Amina was someone, she, there were only two women in, in, on the Interrupters um, team, and there were probably 30 guys. There are times that I can't be there physically with her, but I know that she is fearless and she will lay it on the line and uh, she'll go up against a lion. She will just stand up for anyone because of experiences she's had growing up where someone didn't stand up for her. And she was the only woman and she was the only Muslim, practicing Muslim woman. And she was a dynamo, obviously, in the room. Our mosque is holding a prayer visual for a kid shot sitting in front of his home just listening to the radio. Corey definitely wasn't in a gang, and he was loved by his block. When rage sets in, when ego sets in, when a Hennessy sets in, I'm gonna walk down here to where Corey's friends are. You stay right here. These young guys say, let's go get who we think did it. I'm hearing 20 different things why that brother got changed. And all of it is stupid. All of it is stupid. Two o'clock in the afternoon when these babies coming home from school, y'all shoot. For real. This is unacceptable for me to be holding this boy, this young man's obituary. Schools, churches, your mama's house, your cars, those are safe zones. When I was about your age, I was making some real stupid decisions and some stupid calls that was causing me, my life, blood on my hands, in my head. Stop. Who does this baby belong to? Who does this little shorty belong to? He just hanging around, y'all? He just hanging... He just hanging around, y'all, right? So he see everything that you all do, right? So if this brother right here catch a case and do a hundred years, Whose fault is it? It's his fault? Uh-huh. <laughs> Our fault. Teach him righteous. Y'all got it? Yes. Yeah. Y'all got it? Yeah. You got it? Yeah. All right. I'm looking to you. So, and then when I found out that she was Jeff Fort's daughter, Jeff Fort being historically probably the most powerful gang leader 
if not certainly in Chicago and maybe anywhere in America, um, when in his prime, in his you know in his time, uh, I just thought this. I mean, we've got to follow this woman. You know, she's yeah. she's doing this work, uh, and who she is and everything about her. We've got to follow her. And so, Tio Hardman, who was the head of the Interrupters team, agreed that she'd be great to follow, and he told. Amina that um, she should participate in this, but she didn't want to. Hmm. Um, she didn't trust us. I mean, because we were basically three white guys, and hmm. she didn't know me, and she didn't know Alex, and she didn't know Zach, <clears throat> but she did know media, mm-hmm. and she knew the way the media liked to look at violence. Hmm. And uh, we, she, we didn't know any of this initially. She just was very elusive. And yeah. but she did what she was told. She she did an interview with us, and she let us in on one mediation. And it was um, it was that first mediation where she goes to that group home right. uh, at night, and we filmed that. And then she said, "I'm done." And I said, hmm. "Oh wait, wait. What do you mean you're done?" She goes, I, I, "I did it. I gave you an interview, and it was a really good interview." <laughs> <laughs> And it was a really good mediation. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, I'm done. And huh. I was like, no, 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 no. We're, we're just getting started, you know? And she started dodging our calls. And I would call her and she wouldn't answer. And so then Alex tried her one time because he hadn't called her and she answered. And that was hmm. the last time she answered his phone. And wow. she was like, that was very slick, but that won't work again. And, <laughs> and, so she was being really elusive, and then, thank God, her husband, the Sheikh, mm-hmm. um, he was, a, you know, this is where, Bob, I have been so blessed by the documentary gods. I, mm-hmm. I, I, he was an ex-basketball player. Oh, and he knew hoop dreams. He played in college, even. Oh. And... She was probably, I think, complaining about us. She used to, and she likes to joke about it now that we were stalking her, but we were. <laughs> we were. Yeah. Uh, she calls us her stalkers. Uh-huh. And she was complaining about us one day to him. And he said, You know, that guy, you know, he made a pretty great documentary on basketball called yeah. Dreams. I think she'd heard of it, but she hadn't seen it. Yeah. And he was like, you know, you I think you're like being hard here, you know? Like so she called me up and that talk about a surprise. I got oh, she called you. She called me up. Oh. You know, I had her phone. I had her cell phone. It, uh, Mia uh-huh. Matthews popped up. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, gotta answer this. <laughs> you know. And she goes, Hey, <laughs> you know, I need to see hoop dreams. Uh-huh. And she goes, and pick a, another couple films of yours that you think I should see, too. Right. Because she'd looked on the internet and seen I'd made other stuff, too. Right. So, and she said, and, and Alex, that book he wrote, I need that. <laughs> there, is, there are no children <laughs> yes. here? Yes. Yeah. So we got, so I, I showed her uh, Hoop Dreams, Stevie, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And, That's a tough film. Yeah. And at the Death House door. Oh, yeah. And Alex gave her her book. And then, I don't know, a week, week and a half later, wasn't long, she called me up again. And, mm-hmm. I, th- and I think she also had a, co- a conversation with Alex uh, mm-hmm. as well. She called me up again and she says, okay, I, I see what you guys are about. I see what you're about. And she goes, you know, 
you don't have to do the films or write the books that you do that that you know you could do other stuff but you've chosen to do stuff these topics and and stevie in particular spoke to her Hmm. um i mean they all did in a way but stevie spoke to her because she's like you know who wants to go make a film about a guy like that you know (laughs) (laughs) not exactly a ticket for stardom you know what i mean it's like but it touched her and um and it's funny there is a moment in her home in her house when we finally got into her house to film which didn't didn't happen overnight where you see a copy of Stevie on on the on the table or something, oh. and, and and very astute viewers have noticed it and, and asked me like, why does she have a copy of Stevie? And that's the reason. And oh. and so she got it, and she at that point she was in, and she was like, mm. and thank God, right? And and she said, I you know, then she told us what she thought. She said, I thought you guys were just like the rest of the media. I just figured you were looking for some thrilling shit you know mm-hmm. uh violence in the city and uh i, I wasn't i wasn't down with that i wasn't going to give you that um, right and it took a long time to get her to let us into her home it became a running joke it was like when are you when are we going to get to come to your house and, and meet your family and she was right. like nope 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 not ready for that yet not ready for that mm. yet and then finally she did so it was a even though she she let us in, obviously you see it in the film. She let us into her work in a in a very substantial way. Personally, the relationship did. It was a it was a process, almost a year long process of the making of the film that the relationship blossomed to the point where mm. we were in her home and and the friendship that now you know I have with her. Wow, what a story! Uh, you know, it, it, people don't maybe people that don't make documentaries. I don't think they understand the sheer persistence required to make these films and to get like Amina Matthews to finally agree to be in your film, you know, is takes a lot of grit and just kind of dogged, you know, persistence to get that. Yeah. We had the same thing with Lori Lightfoot. Yeah. With Um, your uh, city. So real, so real, like she fascinated us. And this was before she was even considered to even have a prayer of making the runoff. Let alone, right. she, let was, alone. she was at two two percent at one point. She was at two point eight percent with a month yeah. to go, right, for the runoff. So, but we didn't pick candidates purely based on who we thought could win. We did pick those candidates and tried to get access to them and had some access and not some access, but that was okay. Mm-hmm. But we picked Lori because we were just fascinated with her. She, mm-hmm. you know, she just seemed like a really interesting person who thought she could be mayor of Chicago. Just like one of the key people we followed significantly was the guy that came in last place, Neil Salas Griffin. <laughs> um, and I'm so glad we followed him. His story was yeah, great. Sure. So yeah, it's it, a great it, story. You know, so. With Lori, her press people did not want us to film with her. They they kind of did a, a, an Amina on us. It's like after after me being so persistent, and then I would encounter we would encounter Lori at public events, and I would go up and say, "Lori, we still want to film with you." You know, Lori, Lori. She she finally, I think, just convinced them to let us film with her just so we'd get off her back. You know what I mean? Um, I give up. Yeah, you know, and so we went out for one day with her, mm-hmm. and we made it a long day, and we got as much as we could, and then 
her press person was kind of like, okay, we did that, basically. And right. I could not get her to arrange for Lori to do stuff with us. So what did we do? We just started showing up because I got the sense that Lori enjoyed our, the time with us and, and, and she knew my work and there was some respect there, which was great. Yeah. And so we just started showing up and I just, I would just walk past the press person <laughs> and go right to Lori and go, Hey Lori, mind if we put a mic on you today? And she'd go, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. She's great in the film. She, she's so honest. Actually, watching it, I was struck by how little I knew about her uh, because she's very honest in her co- driving, driving you guys around in her car, yeah, and talking about quite honestly about the city and its many problems, and yeah, yeah it was. It and she was, had uh, no entourage. No entourage. You know, she's driving herself. She's driving herself, and that and wasn't she's talking us. about. That's what she up did. Groceries for her. Yeah, for her wife. <laughs> her wife, right. That's great. Yeah. That is a case, though, of us, you know, what you're talking about, which is, you know, you can't take no for an answer if you can find a way around no. Right. But you've got, you'll you'll never get there unless you win over, ultimately, the person that you're trying to get to. Even if you have to work around other people that are in your way, they have to want you there because otherwise you, you don't have a prayer. And they also, I think, if they understand the films you've made it's a significant difference from you know being a media organization or somebody out to do a hit job or something or exploiting a story or a person it's so different they have to trust you uh and i would think that the the body of your work is in some ways is is helpful in opening those doors they can see what you've done and uh, the trust you've gained with all these subjects and the fact that you're not out to you're not out to make the next hit movie or the next clearly uh, job. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to tell you but <laughs> oh really bob i thought it was thanks thanks for that well no you, the the thing is is that you're right and hoop dreams especially has been a real door opener for films yeah. over the years in fact, if I'm approaching someone and there's resistance and they're, they're kind of like, well, who are you? And if mm-hmm. I mention hoop dreams and I get a blank stare, then I'm history. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. I'm, I'm history. It's over. Right. It's over. But I don't a lot of times get that. So that's good. But I'll tell you where hoop dreams has consistently hurt me over the years. And this will probably surprise you. H- given hurt you? Hurt okay. me. Hurt I me with hurt this. me with access. Okay. Schools. Oh, Oh, because they see what you—they see the access you had at the school, uh, Saint Saint Joseph's, at Saint Joseph's, and even at Marshall. Yeah. Even though I think we present Marshall mm-hmm. in a sympathetic light, but it's yeah. it's a, a look at a poor West Side Chicago public school that's got problems, right? Yeah, I mean, no, not everybody's going to look great in those scenes of like the counselor or the, you know, the teacher. Um, that's interesting that it that it. Uh, had that effect on you. And what's surprising about that is, is that I, you know, I did manage to do this 10 part series where we were in a school. <laughs> yeah. But that never would have happened. America to me never would have happened had I not been a resident of Oak Park for all these years and sent right. my kids to that school. In other words, if I had walked in there just the director of Hoop Dreams and other films that they may have liked, I think they would have said, no way. Right. No way. 
<laughs> well, I want to get to America to me, but I want to just co- talk about two other films before we get to mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger, Roger Ebert obviously was an early champion of Hoop Dreams in your early films. And then you kind of, in a way, turned the tables and you've made a film about him uh, called Life Itself, which is a fantastic portrait of, of uh, Roger in a very vulnerable situation where he was literally dying of cancer. It's not um, a typical Steve James film uh, because it's a bio, although it has verite footage in it, obviously. But I wonder if you could tell us about that film. Why did you want to make that film? And, and uh, you know, what was your strategy in making the film? Yeah, I was approached about that film by the producer for Steve Zellian, the, the director and very talented screenwriter in Hollywood. They had read... Roger's autobiography, his memoir, uh, Life Itself, and loved it and thought it was a great foundation to do a documentary on Roger. And so they approached me and said, would this be of interest to you? And I hadn't read Roger's memoir at the time. So I said, well, let me, you know, it sounds interesting, but let me read, let me read the memoir. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first hundred and I used to know the exact page count, but the first something like 145 pages all take place in Champaign-Urbana of him growing up Mm. and going to college. And it's interesting, but I remember thinking, my God, this guy remembers too much about his childhood. (laughs) And I wasn't sold until he got to Chicago. And then when he got to Chicago, for me, I mean, the first part of the book is certainly very interesting, but when he gets to Chicago, it just took off the story, his life in every way. And by the time I finished that book, I was like sold that I would love to do a biography of Roger. And it was driven by a couple of things. One was he had an incredible story that was so unlike what I imagine it would be and that film critics in general lives are. It was, you know, I always imagine film critics, especially one as prolific as Roger is having spent way too much time in dark rooms <laughs> right. and not enough actually living life. Okay. Right. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth about Roger Ebert. He somehow managed to be in a lot of dark rooms and live the fullest of lives. I was taken yeah. with that, you know? Um, and then the other thing was, yes, he had been extremely generous to me as a filmmaker on Hoop Dreams, but also on other films, on Stevie and on The Interrupters, for example, on both those films, he he was incredibly generous uh, in his support. And it's not that I felt I owed him that, but I felt like I like this guy and I like how complicated he is and I love his spirit. We all are born with a certain package. We are who we are where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. It lets you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. 
And the last piece of it was, I wanted to try my hand at a biography. You know, I wanted to do something mm. different. You know, I want. I, I knew that I would want to do some of. Like what it's I a do. different kind of a challenge. It's a different kind of a challenge, and I wanted to try my hand at a biography that's driven much more by interviews and archival, but with the twist that I, of course, couldn't resist, <laughs> which is to follow him around right. in the present some too. Right, and so he was. Obviously, he was okay with that. I mean, a lot of people would not want to be filmed with that situation, which, you know, he had severe cancer. Uh, he, he didn't, you know, obviously, he didn't look, he looked somewhat deformed, but seemed to be okay with having uh, you film him in all these different situations. Uh, it was amazing and quite, quite um, moving, I think, to follow that part of the story. Well, well, again, thank you. Again, I mean, again, the documentary God smiled on me because here's a guy who is, you know, literally world famous mm -hmm. and powerful still, even though his show had been off the air when we made the film, because on the Internet, he had he had really become a force. And yet he insisted on those things. He wanted this to be honest mm -hmm. and Chaz, for example, did not want us to see things like the tube going in his neck. Let's just be clear. Chaz Ebert is, was Roger's wife. Yeah. When we, when we had a meeting with them before we began filming, we had a, a meeting, kind of a pre-pro meeting at the house. And we were talking about shooting coming up and what, what the plan was. And this was, of course, you know, he hadn't been committed to the hospital yet. He, wasn't, he hadn't hurt himself. Right. <clears throat> so we had all these plans. And at one point, Chaz turned to me and uh, Zach uh, and said, can you guys go in the other room for a minute? And he put, you know, they had a way of communicating non-verbally where she knew exactly what he meant by just his hand right, gestures and facial expression, right? right? He did this gesture of like, why? You know, what, what, what are you doing? And she goes, Roger, I feel like we have to do this and I just don't want them to I, I feel like it's private and it's just not something I feel like they should be here for and see so we went into his office but the way their beautiful condo is set up is there's all these glass windows mm -hmm. <laughs> I could see what was going on right and I could see that he was having a vigorous conversation quote-unquote with her <laughs> uh -huh. about it while it was going on while they were doing the yeah. suction and I turned to Zach and I said, we, we have to get this. Yeah. We have to get this. And so the first time it happens in the film, which is quite graphic, she wasn't there. Mm. And Roger knew this was the time to do it because he wouldn't have to convince her. And we just did it. Uh -huh. And that's why he sent that email afterwards. Like, I'm so glad we got something today people don't see. Suction. Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's, the, that's the kind of subject Suction. he was and insisted on being. So, I mean, he's the kind of subject you dream of uh, having. But come, what, what, what comes with that is tremendous responsibility yeah. to him, too, you know. And then he died before we finished the film and before he could even see a cut of the film. And mm. so during editing, when David Simpson and I were editing the film, I often thought of Roger sitting on my shoulder, mm. uh, watching what we were doing and saying, make it honest. Put that part in there where Marlene Jean's widow says that, you know, Roger stole a cab from her when she was seven months pregnant. 
Um, you know, I, I, I was like, boy, do I really want to put that in there? And I could imagine Roger on my shoulder going, yes, put that in yeah. there. Yeah. That was very brave of him to allow that to be filmed. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It was an incredible experience. And Chaz and I, I didn't know Chaz really at all until I didn't know Roger that well. Every time right. I saw Roger and Chaz publicly or at a film festival or I would run up, say hello, and then run off. And Chaz told me when we when we were making the film, she said, we thought it was really kind of odd the way you would kind of run up and say hello to us and then run away so quickly. We didn't because I thought that I wasn't supposed to talk to him because I was a um, filmmaker and he's a film critic. And I, I like a conflict of interest almost yeah, or? that that I that he it would make him uncomfortable for me to do that. Uh, I see. And and I see. so I would and so I would run off. And uh -huh. so I never got to know either of them really until I made this film and Chaz especially. And, you know, I love Chaz and and Chaz Chaz and I have become really good friends as a result of this film. And um, I felt like this is a film that even though it's different from the others, it also grapples with race in, this, in their story. When he was in the hospital before, we took a semi-not-sanctioned trip out of the hospital, bundled him up and took him to the movies. But I don't know if they, I don't think the doctor would let you out. Oops. Chaz is a strong woman. I never met anyone like her. I think it'll be easier. You can. She is the love of my life. Make sure that you don't get cold. She saved me from the fate of living out my life alone, which is where I seem to be heading. The first time he actually saw me was at an AA meeting. And uh, it's the first time I've ever said it publicly. Roger became very public about his. But I felt it was, you know, more private for me. If it doesn't fit, you must have quit. Roger weighed 300 pounds when we first started dating. He didn't care that he was fat. He thought he was great. And that was so sexy. I take it this is not yours. If my cancer had come and Chas had not been there with me, I can imagine a descent into lonely decrepitude. That I am still active, going places, moving, is directly because of her. My instinct was to guard myself. I could never again be on television as I once was. She said, yes, but people are interested in what you have to say, not in how you say it. Right, it's a mixed couple, just so people know. Chaz is African-American and it's a mixed race marriage. Uh, earlier in the film, uh, Roger talks about uh, civil rights when he was in college and everything. So uh, it, does, it does link in very much into civil rights and race issues as well. During my years at Illinois, I spent more time working on the Daily Illini than studying. It was in every sense a real newspaper, published five days a week on an ancient Goss rotary press that made the building tremble. As editor, I was a case study, tactless, egotistical, merciless, and a showboat. And he was, but it worked because he could back it up. It was intimidating to the members of the staff 
because he was like uh, a mature writer at that time. Now here, when those four children were killed in the church bombing in Birmingham, there was a huge protest around the country. 400 students gathered on the university quadrangle to protest the bombing of an Alabama Sunday school. And Roger was the voice of outrage on this campus. He started out his column by quoting Dr. Martin Luther King, who said to George Wallace, the blood of these innocent children is on your hands. That ended the quote. Then Roger began his column by saying, that is not entirely the truth. The blood is on so many hands that history will weep in the telling. And it is not new blood. It is old, very old. And as Lady Macbeth discovered, it will not ever wash away. That began a column written by a 21-year-old guy, and he said it better than anybody said it all week. Absolutely, because he was active. And he was, he was, a, he was a white film critic at a time when there were, and there still are, too few critics of color who went out of his way to do his best to help filmmakers of color get their work out there and seen and recognized. Right. You know, he used his power, both he and Gene. Yeah. <clears throat> they used their, this enormous power that they accumulated for good, which was pretty incredible. I want to jump a few years forward to Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. It's the incredible story of small bank in New York called Abacus that became uh, the only, as far as I know, the only uh, in institution like that to be criminally indicted uh, after the the 2008 mortgage crisis. Uh, yes. how did still true. Did, <laughs> still true, unfortunately. Uh, it doesn't seem like a typical Steve James film because most of the events had happened or a lot of the events had happened in the past, but how did you... How did you come to this film? <clears throat> that was another one that was brought to me. So you're seeing a lot of my best ideas were brought to me. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, works for me. Mark Mitten, who worked with me on Life Itself as a co-producer, and, and he also was a funder and an executive producer. Mark called me up one day uh, and said that he had this family in New York, the Sungs, that were good friends of his, and that they were going through this They were about to go through a trial that was extraordinary, that they were the only U.S. bank indicted in the wake of the 2008 crisis, and they were a small community bank in Chinatown, and I was like, what? And he said, and, you know, he sort of gave me the broad outlines of, of the story, you know, of how they had discovered some very, very low-level fraud internally and reported it, fired people and reported it, did did what they thought was all the right things and and got they it. reported it themselves. They reported it themselves to the federal yeah. authorities, to the proper authorities, and even right. and even sent someone to the police, who they um, didn't realize at the time was a victim of the fraud, but thought was in cahoots with the fraud. So they sent them to the police because they figured mm -hmm. if they were in cahoots, they wouldn't go to the police. So they right. sent them to the police. <laughs> Wow, and and were rewarded with being indicted and dragged through a, a trial that spanned several years, and from the indictment to completion. This whole five-year ordeal began in December of 2009. At a closing that day, involving one of our loan officers, Ken Youth, 
That was Friday. Then on Monday, Ken came in and I fired him that day because he was lying all over the place. Ken you stole money that he was running a money laundering operation on his own, unbeknownst to everybody here. Obviously committed fraud. I referred the case to our compliance officer and then we hired an outside consultant, a former federal prosecutor who was highly experienced in fraud and anti-money laundering investigations. So it was this perfect evidence of a bank finding out something that shouldn't be happening and taking steps to make sure this didn't happen again. The DA's office started asking us questions. Everybody who asked us for something, we gave them. We thought we actually went beyond what we were supposed to do. My compliance officer actually put together binders for her staff. And so basically, the beginning of the case was handed to her team in binder form. You know, at first you think that they're here to figure out what's going on for us because they're law enforcement. I don't know where and at what point we transitioned to... In their mind, yeah. To in their mind, and then us realizing, wait a minute, you know, maybe we're the target. And so I was fascinated with the story, but I wasn't sure if there was a film there simply because there was going to be a trial getting underway, but what would we be able to film? Right. And so I agreed to go to New York for a few days to shoot with the family. And in the meantime, we tried to see about access to uh, the prosecution team. We tried to get access to the courtroom. We tried to get access to the Sung's defense lawyers. And it was no on all three cases. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oof, you know. And every door was shut. Every door was shut except access privately to the Sung's. So I said, you know, let's see. So I, I figured, you know, I'll spend three days in New York, we'll film, and then I'll decide whether I think I want to go further. And I said to Mark, if I don't want to go further, you'll have enough stuff to put a demo together and get somebody else maybe to come in and direct it if you still want to pursue it. <clears throat> and he was like, okay, that's, it. that's fair enough, right. fair, good deal. So I went, fell in love with the family. <laughs> and the story and then I was in and 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 thought because you know I I persistent and, and able to talk people into letting us film I thought I'll I'll surely be able to talk the lawyer their lawyers into letting us you know lawyers love the camera generally um, yeah you know surely I'll be able to talk the defense lawyers into this that, that'll be no sweat right I never did they <laughs> they, they they are in the film but they didn't agree to be interviewed until after the case was done, and so we had to handle it that way. Um, I was pretty right. confident that the prosecution wouldn't let us in, and that the and the judge, the judge was willing to let us in, but it he they both sides, both sets of lawyers would have had to agree, or and he would have let us in. He saw the significance of the case, and thought mm-hmm. it would be important to document. But anyway, we just decided that we could figure out a way to tell this story more intimately through the Sung's experience of the trial. And because they were such an amazing, funny, (laughs) outspoken family, uh, loving family, um, you know, I just thought, well, this will have to be enough. And I was intrigued with the idea of doing a courtroom film. You know, I am I am someone that likes to do different stuff. You know, I, I'm, you know, if you know my work, I'm known mostly for stuff that's very much grounded in verite and following people around and all that. But I, you know, I like trying my hand at different 
kinds of films too, you know. I, I want to have a broader palette <laughs> and and it's nice to do different stuff. So that was a film that, that you know, it's really a legal film. Sometimes, a lot of times when you're making your films, you're challenged by a lot of things out of your control and this seems to be one of them where you couldn't get access to the court or the lawyers. It's kind of inherent in our field. So so how do you how do you deal with that? You you have to keep trying to get the access that you think is important. Don't give up on it. You can't make yourself so obnoxious that you alienate people and, and hurt yourself. But you have to keep trying, which is which has paid off for me over the years, but but sometimes you don't succeed. And so you have to decide how you're going to tell this story without it. And you know, you know this, Bob, as a filmmaker, a lot of times not having something spurs you creatively to come yeah. up with something that is that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise that's really makes it different in a good way. And so for instance the the in in the case of Abacus, you know, I've seen a lot of courtroom films where they don't have access to the courtroom. That's that's a pretty common thing to not have. When you have it it's great, but I've certainly seen plenty of films where the courtroom proceedings are not in the film. And a lot of times the way they're dealt with in films is is that, you know, you shoot the empty courtroom. Right. And, We've and seen sh- that a million times. Yeah, right. and shoot it a million you know, and shoot it a million different ways. So we did that, because I figured we'd need some of that. But then we came up with this idea of hiring this incredible courtroom artist oh. from New York who did all the big trials and we hired her and said we want you to basically illustrate the courtroom scenes. And if right. you, you know, if you look at it with that in mind, she's got all these angles in there that you never see in courtroom art. You know, the courtroom artist is always sitting in, seated in one place, looking at right. the back of the uh, heads of lawyers and into the right. face of the person on the witness stand and looking at the, you know, the jury box um, and the judge, and that's it. They don't move around. We have over the shoulder <laughs> uh, you know, we have, we have, we, we, sh- she storyboarded it basically with guidance from us. And then she did beautiful illustrations. And that became our way to try to bring this to life in a way that, you know, we hadn't quite seen. We couldn't afford animation. That would have been another way to go. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of not big on animation in mm. general. I, I see it working great. I, I've seen some animated, entirely animated films that I love. Mm. Like yeah. Waltz with Bashar, uh, that's an amazing film. But I've seen a lot of animation in otherwise regular documentaries, and I'm kind of like, eh, maybe, maybe. I, I liked the idea of of stills and drawings for me anyway in this film much better. Did the did the DA uh, Cyrus Vance Jr. Uh, or Polly Greenberg, do they ever see the film? And, and do you know what their thoughts are? <clears throat> they must have seen it at this point, but uh, they've never publicly spoken about it that I, that I know of. At what point did you decide to give the film a kind of a broader context uh, with regard to the, to the big banks, to their nefarious behavior, to work in that larger story? Was that always going to be part of your strategy or did it kind of evolve it it was part of the initial strategy but only to do it in the most um economical way possible Mm -hmm. um so that we could we could provide the needed context for what was going on here but not get buried in the story of 2008 and the big banks 
And, right. and one of the challenges was how do we do that we, when we first started cutting it, and, and it was this film was edited by David Simpson and John Farbrother. I, I was not mm. an editor on this film, which is why it's so short and made, you know was more, more <laughs> successful, I guess. But right. um, why it got nominated for an Academy yeah, Award? Yeah, yeah, probably. We at first this was when before John had entered the picture. David was cutting those sections, and he was. You know, he was you know raiding the internet for all the usual stuff, the ticker tapes and the the bull on Wall Street and the you know all the stuff you see. And whenever they talk about financial world and stock market crashes and all that kind of stuff, right? The iconic images, the iconic images ripped from new news shows and the like, right? And we looked at it and we were just like. First of all, we don't want to do this. This is boring. We've seen this a million times. It makes it feel like it's a TV show. Um, yeah. And secondly, it just seemed like it was way too much for what we wanted to accomplish. Um, and so we landed on this idea of just shooting the edifices of these banks because to us, they, they stood for their power and influence um, in America in a way yeah. in a way that we found much more interesting than all of that other stuff. And that also then freed us or forced us, if you will, to really make it as economical as possible because you can't do that forever. Um, right. and, and so we did. And so that was that was a key. And I think <clears throat> the other big decision in this film was trying to get the prosecution's voice into the film, to get Polly Greenberg and Cyrus Vance Jr. into the film. Mm -hmm. And from the get-go, we wanted that, and we were clear with the songs that we were gonna do everything in our power to articulate the case against them from the people who were making the case against them. Right. And it's to their credit that they went along with us making this film, not knowing the outcome of the trial, because they felt so clearly innocent that they felt that they could stand the scrutiny uh, from the other side, both in the mm. trial and in the film. And so <clears throat> it, took, it took a while to get that. And Cyrus Vance was the last piece of that puzzle. We interviewed the New Yorker reporter who had done a piece in the New Yorker on the trial that, that we heard the prosecution thought was fair. Right. So we interviewed her first. Then we went to Polly Greenberg, who had left the office, and she. We told her about the interview with the uh, New Yorker person, and that it was vitally important to us to get this uh, their side in the story. So she agreed. She was free now to talk to us. We had, we tried so many people in the office that were there at the time and got shut out completely. Hmm. And then once we had Greenberg, once we had the New Yorker, then we got the juror that was one of the holdouts. Right. And. <clears throat> We took all of that to Cyrus Vance and said, look, <laughs> we're serious about this. Yeah. Don't you want to have your side represented, basically? And so he agreed to like a 20-minute interview that turned into a 45-minute interview. Right. And he's regretted it ever since, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I want to finish up the uh, this uh, great podcast uh, with the series you did more recently. It's a 10-part series called America to Me. And it follows a whole year 
at Oak Park River Forest High School, where, as you said, your own kids went to school and you lived there. Uh, um, just describe to us how difficult it was. It seemed like it would have been difficult to get, first of all, just to get into that school and get permission because the film has amazing, seemingly amazing access. It seems like the cameras are everywhere all the time. How did you achieve that? Well, you know, Bob, that one of the tasks of good editing is to make the viewer think that they are not missing anything important. Right. Right? <laughs> of course. Um, so You weren't we, supposed to tell that secret. That's right. So <laughs> we, we, had, we had a tremendous team on this series, first and foremost. It, it, this is a series where I am the really the lead director, <clears throat> but I had three other what we ended up for D Directors Guild of America reasons having to call story directors or segment directors is that I can't remember they 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 That's I they segment directors I wanted to call them story directors and they wouldn't let me right you know Rebecca Parrish Kevin Shaw and Bing Liu who went you know also made Mining the Gap that came out the same year right amazing film <laughs> which may yeah may have been the best standalone feature doc of the year, in my humble opinion. I agree. So we had this incredible team of filmmakers, which did allow us, once we had access, to be a lot of places at once uh, and follow a lot of threads. And then we had this incredible edit team, David Simpson again, Leslie Simmer, who's worked with me also in the past. I was also a primary editor once shooting ended. And then we had also Elena Schmelter and Ruben Daniels, who also did some incredible editing, include in, in addition to their roles, more support-based roles. So <clears throat> this was a monstrous undertaking. And the way in which we got the access was in part due to the fact that I was a longtime resident. We had a producer, John Conney, who was a teacher there. And he's the one, I, this is something, American to me is a, is a well, it's gonna be a film initially, of course, and then look what it turned into but 10 shows yeah it's something again that i'd wanted to do for years but thought would never be possible because i mm. having lived in oak park all those years i knew how protective oak park is of its reputation as this sort of place of great racial harmony and liberalism right um, and i knew having lived there all these years that the rhetoric exceeded the reality Hmm. <clears throat> and I knew that in the school, I felt felt the school was a perfect window into that, as well as a window into larger issues about education and race and disparities for the country. Because I've seen a lot of films, very good films over the years about race and education in poor public schools, in mm -hmm. besieged communities, and in fact, in Hoop Dreams, um, Marshall is such a school. Right. Um, <clears throat> but I hadn't seen a film that went into a suburban interracial school where there were none of the usual obstacles to achievement for kids of color being lack of resources, violence, seemingly no will to make change. None of that applied to Oak Park. Right. So I thought, what better place to really grapple with education in America at a, at a different, in a different way and at a fundamental level that eliminates the obvious causes, which are true, true causes, and digs down deeper into even deeper causes or, or other causes at the, at the very least. So I made my big pitch. 
John Connie, the teacher who was a producer, told me that he thought that the school board would be receptive and that I said, there's no way to make this film because the school will never let us in. And he said, it's not up to the school. It's up to the school board. Oh, and and okay. he said, I think that if we talk to school board members, they just might be willing to do it because so many of them run for the school board on equity issues and wanting to make Oak Park school system more equitable and to eliminate these disparities. Mm. And so it's, and he was right. <clears throat> and so we set about meeting with different members of the school board individually, and then we presented to the school board. And of course, as expected, the principal and the superintendent of the school came out publicly against allowing us in. And the school board bravely overrode them and allowed us in. And so we were in the school, but of course we had to deal with the administration daily throughout the entire year. And that was, that was the biggest stressful challenge I've experienced as a filmmaker. Really? In terms of dealing with subjects. Yeah. Yeah. That oh. was, <clears throat> we could do a whole other podcast on this series and what that was like. But, but the, the, the great thing is, is that we found what we thought were incredible kids and families mm. and teachers and we that opened themselves to us there were many teachers that did not want to have anything to do with this film there were right. you know there were many places where the answer was no but there were many many places where people got what we were doing thought what we were doing was of great value and welcomed us in bravely and that's the series we made and um, I also, as you've seen, because you've seen the series, we mm -hmm. decided to foreground the lack of cooperation from the administration because neither the principal or superintendent ever agreed to be interviewed. Right. You state that in the film at the beginning of the film. We state it at the beginning so and we come back to it's it. A, which is smart because it's a settled issue then. It's a settled issue, but it also was revealing too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. they're in the film, whether they want to be or not, because they can't they couldn't keep us out of school board meetings and public school events. Right. They could only keep us out of private meetings that they were involved with and, you know, declined to be interviewed. And believe me, I tried to convince them both repeatedly that it mm -hmm. was in their best interest to participate, which it was. Oh, yeah. So I I'm actually happy to say that the series led very directly to, I, th I think it's inarguable that the series led very directly to that superintendent and that principal are no longer at Oak Park River Forest High School. Oh, neither one of them. Neither wow. one of them. Interesting. I think that's a good thing. It's yeah. not that I think they're bad people. They're not. Yeah. They're well-meaning people and they're smart people, but they were not good leaders for that school and there needed to be change. And I, the series helped considerably to make that change. And Oak Park mm. River Forest High School is still wrestling with and struggling with these issues, but I think it's doing it more openly. At least I hope it's doing it more openly. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable series, partly due to the amazing characters in the film, the students, the teachers, the parents, uh, just to pick out a couple, um, and they're all great uh, there's a teacher named Jessica Stovall, who's a mixed race uh, woman from, there's an interesting backstory because she is from a white town in Wisconsin, uh, and she faced a certain amount of uh, taunting and racism as she was growing up. And at one point you go back 
you kind of leave the realm of the school, which is the main part of the story, but you go back to her hometown in this white kind of idyllic town in Wisconsin and tell her story of her mixed race family. And then what's interesting to me is you have a, a fantastic transition then from going back to Wisconsin and dealing with some of her backstory, what she faced as a kid, what her father faced when he was growing up in the projects in St. Louis. And then you have to get back to the school though. And I just wanted to have you talk about the idea of transitions because I always find them to be very difficult in a documentary to make, to connect things together. But this is just a, this is just one of many examples of just fantastic transition that seems organic, yet it is quite a leap in some ways. I never thought I would be in a position in which I'm just surviving and that I'd have some of the same feelings teaching at OPRF that I had growing up in Wisconsin. It was white. It was as white as you could get in small town USA. We were the only African-American family. <laughs> that was the longest trip ever. Oh, I know. Oh, my God. It's too long. Oh, your hair is so short. I right. So are you feeling burnt out? Yeah. The kids are wonderful. It's the school that doesn't support me. My dad is a professor of psychology. And my mom has been a third grade teacher for now. 37 years. Growing up in that small town, there were racial incidents, like getting called nigger in the locker room. But for the most part, it wasn't something that we addressed. My mom, she's so wanting the world to be a better place that it's just painful for her to hear those things. I know that... There were some issues, some troubles, like on the school bus and and things like that that were that were not good, but hopefully we dealt with them as we went. Beautiful morning, you know. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's so bad. My dad grew up in the projects of St. Louis, actually Pruitt Igo, one of the most notorious projects in the US been quite the um, journey. I think the hardest part was just feeling unsafe all the time. You'd be walking and then somebody would just run past you and they'd have a gun in their hand. Yeah. One day, I was in fourth grade. And I'm going to get on the other side of you. I found a spot about halfway down the bus and kind of sunk down in the seat because I wanted to eat these, these Hershey chocolate kisses and I didn't want to have to share them with anybody. This girl came forward with two boys and proceeded to say a series of things about you're having too much chocolate, you're turning black, and, you know, how does it feel to be a nigger? But the thing that really stuck with me, she says an incredibly devastating comment that I obtained my black skin from a sexual relationship with my father.
I remember like throwing up in my mouth a bit and like she saw my visceral reaction and then continued laughing and then they got up and left. And I got off the the bus and my dad was there. He knew something was wrong because I was hysterical and I was so humiliated and ashamed. For many years, I never told him. I wanted to be strong. I wanted him to be proud of me. As I went to college, I really wanted to have a black community. I'd grown up culturally white. I spoke in standard English. I carried myself in a way considered to be white. For me, I have to code switch to the black community, right? And even to this day, I have trouble navigating this. So for most of our students that are black, one of the challenges is teaching that their racial and cultural backgrounds are beautiful, that they are just as valuable, but that they have to code switch so that they are seen as equal, that they are seen as intelligent. It's a little bit of teaching them how to play the game. I wonder if you could just talk about that. Yeah, I thank you for that, and, and the edit team thanks you for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we went in to edit this series, um, David, both David and Leslie had both worked with me on uh, um, The New Americans, which was, uh, at that time, the last docuseries that I had done, the first and last, which was years. This is a series about immigrants in America. Yeah, right. that we had done years earlier. Right. And that, that was a that was a incredible challenge to us editorially to interweave five different stories, five different families right. that don't know each other and don't live in the same place <laughs> yeah, right. in the course of a, of a series. It was a challenge we welcomed, but it was a big challenge. I thought, I thought America to me was going to be kind of a piece of cake in that regard hmm. um, because it all takes place in the same school. Right. And they're all students at the same school and some of them even know each other. Yeah. Uh, and I thought this is going to be easy to structure <laughs> because, you know, it's like we don't have to deal with any of that stuff we did on the New Americans. And it turned out to be, I mean, you can ask the other editors, what they say. I think it turned out to be three times as difficult. Hmm. And, and it's because we were in the same school and there were infinite possibilities <laughs> right. of, of how we could go together. But we had to find ways to balance classroom and after school and trips home and the sports uh, teams sports teams and cheerleading squads and you know right. so and we had to honor the unfolding time period of of a school year of the school year right you know we're we're locked into a in in many ways to a chronology um right. And it's a miniseries, and so, you know, we, we want to leave you at the end of the episode. If not, we don't have cliffhangers in that crime miniseries way. <laughs> no, but there are things at the end of each show that are, are kind of akin to a cliffhanger. It makes you go, oh, I got I, I to gotta figure, uh, you know, what's going to happen next. Our version anyway. And so, sure. you know, and we knew that the, my one idea going into the editing that stuck throughout was, I wanted. I think I thought it was important to have 
some kind of anchor big scene in each episode. Right. Whether it was the first football game or homecoming or prom or a big or basketball Spoken game. word stuff. Yes. Spoken word. Um, and that ended up being a good idea to, to build. It wasn't that we necessarily build a whole episode around that, but we had mm-hmm. culminations that, that I think each episode could build to in some ways. And so the, the example you're talking about is another one of those examples of trying to figure out, we, we kept trying to figure out where Jess's backstory home should go. Right. And, and we were locked into the fact that we shot it in the spring when it was spring and early, you know, as summer was coming on and it was warm out. Yeah. So it, there was only one of two choices. We could either put it at the end of the year or we could put it at the beginning of the year. <laughs> right. We couldn't go back in the middle of in the winter. Middle of winter, right? Or fall. Um, and we really debated about where that would would help us best for a long time. And it moved around. And we debated about how much of it we would do. There were versions of that that scene back in Wisconsin that were much fuller and still interesting, where you got to meet the brothers more, um, mm-hmm. and you got you know more of a sense of of the family. And the community, um, but then we then it just sort of it hit us where it needed to go, because we felt like it had too much. It had so much to say about who Jess was as a character that would inform so much of what you would subsequently come to know about her as she struggled in the school. That we said, okay, we figured out where we think it needs to go, and then it was like, okay. How do we get back? That was what I was. That was why I was so intrigued by how did you get back? To this the is school just my you... long way around to answer your question because <laughs> uh, this is the way I do. I ramble, um, and we, you know, um, I think it was Leslie. Pretty sure it was Leslie's uh, brilliant concept to come back the way we did, and we, we you know, when we were there, we had shot these, these. Um, pictures of on their wall of their family of jessica's family yeah jessica's both sides of her family right um and so we i had shot those when i was in wisconsin and then leslie kind of came up with this idea to kind of use that and with jess talking in voiceover about racial identity and and having to wear you know the the ways in which black kids have to have to live in different spaces in different ways and she was right, she calls it code switching code switching right and she she was applying it to her own life and then leslie just came up with this kind of brilliant transition back to the hallways of oak park and the kids who are living with that today and having to do that and you know, there was a day that me and uh, Kevin Shaw, who was one of the directors, who all, all the directors shot as well. And right. Ke- Kevin Shaw has a brilliant idea, eye, um, mm-hmm. you know, just a brilliant eye. We had spent one whole day just shooting the school each, just shooting the school cafeteria and hallways and kids at lockers and every conceivable thing. Mm-hmm. Because and it was actually relatively late. It was during editing that we went to do this, because oh. we we realized that we needed more, more, more of that. Even though we shot a fair amount of it, so we spent an entire day at the school doing that, 
and shooting some slow-mo and all that stuff. And all of that um, really came in handy and, and gave the editors, you know, a much larger palette to work with uh, for sequences such as the one you're describing. It was great. One other thing I wanted to mention about the film, what partly gives it some momentum are these kind of big events, this the sports stuff and the spoken word, louder than a bomb and all that. But um, when I was watching, the, there's one whole sequence about a football game, Friday night football game. And at first you think it's just, a, you know, it's a portrait of a, a any school in America, Friday night football but you start to realize that it's it itself is a commentary on the racial issues that are out front. You know, the, I believe there's a black, mostly black girls cheerleading squad, and then there's a white, mostly white drill team, and and it's the placement of those two is an indication, or is in a way a racist sort of placement, and also then you hear the uh, opposing players talking about the black players on Oak Park's team. You know, we are one of the few teams in our conference that has a high percentage of black athletes. You know, we don't play a whole lot of teams that look like us. And when we step on the football field, race is present. Good luck, Coach. Have fun. These guys, their football team's predominantly white. Good luck, guys. Have fun out there. Good luck. They've had some... Uh, it's always some, just less than favorable words on the football field that yeah, just kind of slung around it. loosely. Play within the rules! Play smart! Ignore anything they have to say to you! Hey, don't get into it with them. They're going to do that shit on me. Don't get into it. Just pokes with the N-word and just, just stuff like that. Just kind of like comes out where... Hey, boy, you dropped the ball, yeah, boy. Stuff like that. Just trying to get a rise out of people. Hey, come on! Get to the last one. Have sat next to parents who say some really frightening things, like take out that nigger's knees. Just frightening, just like unreal, like from a movie scene, things you see in movies where it's like it it can't be real. I've run the gamut of yelling about it to sending an email to another coach. You know, a lot of the natural reactions, uh, defensiveness or denial, no, that didn't happen. Or, well, maybe it happened, but your kid said this. Let's not just look at blue. Let's look at both teams. I had a conversation with an official once. We had a lot of penalties, and the team that we were playing had very few. And I asked, what can I do? And he says, well, there's really not much you can do. You've you got a really good ball team. You're, 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 your team just plays so aggressively. And, you know, I just got stuck in the word. My team was aggressive. Like, first of all, it's football, and that's kind of what it's supposed to be. But it sounded like there was something else behind the choice of that coded language. And you start to realize that it's a, it's not quite what it seems originally. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yes, the, you know the 
that game, that Hinsdale Central game was interesting because for me, it goes all the way back to when my oldest son was in the marching band back in 2002, so almost 15 years earlier. And we used to go to the games to watch them play uh, the first half so we could watch the marching band play in the second half because Oak Park's team was frequently so bad that <laughs> it was worth leaving at halftime. <laughs> anyway, I noticed then that the cheerleading squad for Oak Park was all black and that the drill team squad was all white. And I remember at the time thinking, why is that? That is so bizarre because even in my high school where the, uh, the football and basketball teams were overwhelmingly black, the cheerleading squad was overwhelmingly white. And so I was wondering, what, what's going on in the culture here at the school that this is the way it works out here? And I was frankly surprised to come back, I don't know, 15 years later when we went to that very first football game. But I was kind of amazed when we went to the first football game that plays in episode one and you see not only is the cheerleading squad all black, but the drill squad is just about still all white. Mm-hmm. And the, the black cheerleaders were performing down at the end of the stadium where all the black people sit and all the white people at the other end, including most of the white student body. So it was just this incredibly racial division. And then we had also heard going into that game that Hinsdale Central, along with a few other still all-white schools in that West Suburban Conference, that there was a history of racial taunting, that that the, the black kids... Uh, on Oak Park's team often were called the N-word or slaves or go back to slavery. And I I was just kind of, you know, I don't know, I felt really naive about that. I thought, I didn't think that was still going on on a sports field. Mm. Uh, Not in this day and age, but it it is and was. And so going into that game to film that game, it became clearly more than just uh, the reason to, was to film a football game. We'd already filmed a football game, the first game of the season. So the, the only reason to go back to the football game in the series was, in fact, to dig into the kind of racial dynamics and contradictions that were going on in that setting. And, and so that's what that's about. It's just, it's, it's, it's actually ended up being, you know, the documentary God smiling on us uh, yet again uh, in that, you know, Hinsdale Central was a powerhouse team that was supposed to beat Oak Park. And yet Oak Park killed them in this game. And there's something very sweet and redeeming about Oak Park's victory there in light of all this racism. It's a, you know, a case where the good guys win. Hmm. As you say somewhat modestly, you've often been blessed by the documentary gods, but we know, of course, there's so much more than that. After all these years, Steve, of making documentaries, what's your biggest takeaway, do you think? One of my favorite Q&A moments in all, all the years of doing films took place with The Interrupters years ago, almost 10 years ago now. It was at some festival, and the screening had ended, and we were starting the Q&A, and I see this guy sitting in the, up in the back, and he's got his hand raised high, and he's giving me this really skeptical look. So, you know, I eventually called on him, because you got to do it. And he goes, uh, so, Steve, um, you directed this? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm the director. And he goes, well, 
you know, it's a documentary, so tell me, I mean, what does a director even do? Don't you just show up and film everything? And, you know, I everyone laughed, or a few people gasped, I guess. <laughs> and I said, you're right. It's the biggest scam going. But, of course, it's not true. And I think one of the themes that has emerged from this conversation with you, Bob, and you know this as well as I do from your long years of making documentaries, is, is that... You know, the coin of the realm in documentary is, is access. It's gaining access to things, to people, to situations that most of us can't or haven't had and providing that window into that world. But making documentaries is also very much about what do you do when you don't get the access that you want. Because sometimes you're pretty fortunate in that regard and you get tremendous access. And then there are times, and I've certainly experienced it, and I know, I'm sure you have too, where the access is very much limited. And it doesn't mean that you don't keep trying to get it throughout the process and trying to win over those people. You know, so much of making a documentary is about convincing people to let you do what you want to do. So you keep doing that, but at the same time, it's also very much about what do you do when you don't get the access? How do you work around it? How do you shoot around it? How do you cut around it and still tell the story and hopefully tell the story in, in a compelling and honest way? And I think that's the thing that you learn to navigate more and more as the years go by. You learn how to convince people and, you know, I've said this often, I think in, in our world, unlike in narrative feature world, in narrative feature world, directors and filmmakers can kind of be jerks and still be successful, uh, very successful. You know, it's a different beast. In, in our world, most of the best directors I know are, are really good with people. They're good with people because they have to engage people. And people have to want them around in order to, for them to do what they want to do. And so, you know, my shorthand of that is, if you want to be a good documentary filmmaker, don't be an asshole. Great words of wisdom to close out the show. Steve James, I want to thank you for sharing your stories and reflections about your amazing career. Thanks for coming on. This has been a real pleasure. I, I've greatly enjoyed talking to you. Since recording this podcast, Steve announced that his newest series, Chicago City So Real, has been sold to National Geographic and will air this fall. Thanks for listening. This is Bob Hercules for Rhythm of Life. next time when I sit down with legendary actor Ernie Hudson to discuss his long and winding career. We talk about his time at the Yale School of Drama, his breakout role in the Ghostbusters, to finding projects that challenge him as an actor. The longevity of his career is remarkable, having appeared with Leonardo DiCaprio in The Basketball Diaries, played the warden in the HBO series Oz, appeared in Grace and Frankie with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, as well as appearing on Ballers with Dwayne Johnson. Hudson has been a fixture of American culture in film and television for decades, and we are excited to have him on the show. Be sure to subscribe to Rhythm of Life, leave us a rating and review so more people can find out about the show, and like us on Facebook. I'm Steve Ordauer. This has been a Rhythm and Light production.